You know, sometimes uh, the love is most beautifully dis- displayed against the darkest of backgrounds. Isn't that true? That we see love when it is compared to that which is most not like love. And our text is like that today. I want you to turn, if you would, to our text, Luke chapter 11. It is just like that, where you have in this this darkness of night, darkness of atmosphere, darkness of spirit, and it is a spirit of religious hypocrisy and legalism. That's the, the night, that's the darkness in this passage. And the light that is displayed against it is the light of God's truth, the light of God's love in Jesus Christ against this darkness. So I want you to turn to this passage, if you would, Luke chapter 11, turn there again. And uh, we did not plan this to be read by a lawyer this morning. (laughs) I was sitting over here, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, really. I was thinking, God, you're awesome. (laughs) I was perfect. I'm so grateful. But uh, Jesus is invited to a dinner party, as we're told in this text. It's beautiful. It's a lovely party. But as you're... Thinking about this dinner party, let me ask you, have you ever been at a a meal or a dinner party where someone said something that was just very inappropriate and immediately it was an awkward, awkward atmosphere around the table or in the room? Now, don't look around too much right now, okay? Ever been in a situation like that? I was like that in a situation like that on just Friday evening. I won't go into the details. Gathering, there was an inappropriate, awkward silence after something was said. When I got home, I had to confront Susan about that and tell her that was not, (laughs) not right. You know that's not true if you know her. (laughs) But here in Luke chapter 11, at a very nice dinner, a very, very wonderful banquet, someone did something. Someone said some things that were considered very inappropriate. And the person who did something and said some things is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to tell you this morning that Jesus is the king of the party crashers. And that's how I'd like us to look at this passage this morning. We're talking about Jesus the king. And that's a theme throughout this whole section of Luke. But you'll see here that Jesus is the king of party crashers. 
He crashed a party at a very religious house. Now he did not do it with a mean spirit. It was an awkward atmosphere that came into the room, but it was only awkward because truth had been spoken in love and that was not the atmosphere of that household. Friends, what I want us to know this morning as we read this passage is that Jesus still crashes parties. And he crashes parties in religious houses. He still crashes parties even when there are worship parties in worship houses. The Lord at times crashes those parties. Speaking the truth in love. Always motivated by love. Now, I want you to see that Jesus was invited to this party, but before long, Jesus crashed the party. He crashed the party because the party was filled with hypocrisy and legalism. It was filled with religious people. You could not have had a more religious crowd than the crowd in which Jesus was gathered that evening and sharing a meal. It was Religious. These are religious people, religious leaders. Jesus crashes into this by revealing the hypocrisy and the legalism that is in this religious gathering. And so this morning, what I want us to do is just Go through the passage. It's been read for us. I want us to walk through it and examine it. We read it. We're going to examine it. And then we want to take some time to apply it to our hearts. And then we want to close by praying about it. That's how you reap the Word of God And its benefits in your life. You read it. You examine it. You apply it. And you pray it. And it always bears fruit. Right? When we do it that way. So this morning we've read God's word. Now let's take a few minutes to look at this passage. Just examine what is going on. Let's take another look. A little deeper look. And you're going to see that what Jesus is doing here is this. First of all, he is exposing, he is exposing these religious Pharisees and lawyers in his day. There is an exposing here of religious leaders that existed in Jesus' day, these Pharisees and these lawyers. Now verse 37 says this is how it started. We're told while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. Now notice here it says while Jesus was speaking. That connects us with what Jesus was speaking. (laughs) That's brilliant, right? 
What was Jesus talking about? If you look at verses 33 through 36, Jesus was finishing up this message. And he was talking about light. He was talking about light, the light which is the message of the gospel. And it's his ministry of the gospel. And Jesus is laying down a principle. And never forget this principle. This is what Jesus is saying in verses 33 to 36. It's a principle he touches on throughout his ministry. It's this, that light accepted, light accepted produces more light. And light rejected produces more darkness. Let me say that again. It's not on the screens, but I want to make sure you hear it. Light received, light accepted, accepting the light of God in Christ, the truth in Christ, the gospel of Christ. If we accept this, it produces more light in our lives. But if the light is rejected, it produces more darkness. Now, it is exactly when Jesus is saying that and teaching that, that this man, the Pharisee, invites him to dinner. Now, we need to make sure we understand the scene. In verse 37, it says, while he was speaking, he asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. Probably this was in the courtyard, okay? So it's, it's not just necessarily in the house, but the courtyard. And you need to understand, uh, a meal like this would have been for Jesus, yes, invited guest, and also some other invited guests. But in that day and age, everything was done by community. So if there was a party in the community, even though you didn't receive an invitation, you went anyway. You didn't lie down at the table. And remember, they reclined to eat. But people would be standing against the walls. They would be walking around the courtyard. So it's not just... A few people here, it is Jesus and some guests with him and people that are standing around listening. So you, you, here's the scene. Now, he's invited by this man who's a Pharisee. We see that word throughout the gospel. And just remind you, the Pharisee literally means separated one. A separated one. It means someone who has set himself, and the Pharisees were men, they had set themselves apart for special dedication to the Lord and observance of his commandments as they called them. The Pharisees were a religious faction. They were really like a religious party. As a matter of fact, it's estimated that there were only 7,000 of them in all of Israel at that time. Uh, this was something that you just didn't join. You, you had to be invited. You had to earn the right to be a Pharisee. About 7,000 of them, they were wealthy people and they tended to be very influential people. Now... Jesus goes to the house of this Pharisee. And quickly, the, the Bible tells us here that the party becomes just a little 
awkward from the start, not by something Jesus says or does, but because of something Jesus doesn't do. Because of what he doesn't do. Note if you will look at verse 38. Verse 38, and the Pharisee was astonished. And the word here means surprised but offended. The Pharisee was offended to see that he, Jesus, did not first wash before dinner. Now you have to understand that the culture behind this, uh, this kind of meal was considered by many to be like a, a religious expression. And so there had been all kinds of rituals that had been developed on how you cleaned your hands, your, your body, before you took this meal. And so just the washing of the hands would have step after step after step. So you get the scene, the man who invites Jesus to have this meal, he's over here going through the step-by-step ritual of preparing himself for the sacred observance of this meal. And he is just... Finishing up getting through the ritual, and he looks over, and Jesus has already gone through quite a bit of bread. Jesus has just started eating. And the man is absolutely offended. This is not done. Now, there was no law of God said that you had to do what the Pharisee was doing. This was all tradition. Jesus isn't breaking any of God's laws. He's just breaking tradition. He's just aligning himself with common people who sit down and have a meal and, yes, give thanks to God for it. And from their heart, they receive it with gratitude. But they don't go through all these external. So the Pharisee was deeply offended at what Jesus had not done at his party. But if the Pharisee was offended in just a few minutes, he's going to get really offended. <laughs> I mean, really offended. Because Jesus already understands what's going through the man's mind. He knows what the man is thinking. He understands his thoughts. You know, Jesus still does that. He doesn't need anybody to show us or tell us. He just knows, right? So he knows what's going on in this man's heart. And that he has judged Jesus and taken offense at Jesus. That Jesus has not gone through this ritual that is so expected. And so the Lord said to him, verse 39, the Lord said, Now, you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? <laughs> I told you this is getting a little awkward, right? But Jesus is responding to what's the reality. He's, he's responding to what the man is 
thinking in his heart. And it's not that Jesus is personally offended. He is grieved over this man's understanding of what true godliness is. And so he says this, you Pharisees, you, 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 you're so involved in the external. What do these Pharisees represent? What is it that Jesus is so touched about in his spirit, knowing this man's thoughts, that he has to, in love, confront him? What is it? The Pharisees are the very epitome of self-righteous hypocrisy. That is what Jesus is addressing here. Self-righteous hypocrisy. Now, how do you define that? How do you define self-righteous hypocrisy? It means when we're more concerned about the externals, the externals of being clean, but we have no concern really for the internal corruption of our heart and our spirit. We make being right with God all about the outside and we do not recognize the core of our hearts that need to be aligned with God. This is what Jesus has been speaking about in this entire section of his life. He says, this is foolish. Don't you understand that the one who made man didn't just make outside, he made the inside too. You put all the emphasis on the outside, but it is God who created your very soul. Now Jesus exposes the Pharisees' hypocrisy. And you talk about Crashing the party again. Now he's speaking the truth and he's speaking in love. But he shows this Pharisee three areas of his hypocrisy. Three areas of his hypocrisy. What are they? Number one, that he is full of hypocrisy in regard to his prophets. His prophets. When I say prophets, that's P-R-O-F-I-T-S, okay? We'll come to the other kind of prophets in just a minute. He's talking about how the Pharisees gave. That's, it's a wonderful thing to give, to give your money away. But it is how they gave that Jesus is addressing. First of all, how they gave to others. Look at verse 41. It's very uh, difficult to translate it literally into our English, but this is the sense of it. But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, if you give of yourself from your heart, then truly you will give your alms, your, your care to people that are in need. It'll be true. It'll be genuine. It won't just be external. It'll be internal. So what is Jesus condemning here? What is he condemning? He's condemning this. You give money to the poor, but you don't give yourself to them. You don't give yourself to people in need. 
You just mark it off as a financial transaction that has nothing to do with any sacrifice of your heart. I love what one author, he's actually the uh, president of, of Wheaton College. He said this, Philip Ryken said, To open your wallet without opening your heart is hypocrisy. To open your wallet without opening your heart is hypocrisy. Now, is it a wonderful thing to open your wallet and give? Yes, but it should be an expression of your heart. Giving of yourself. So he talks about the way Jesus says you're being hypocritical. And the way you give to others, you're being hypocritical in the way that you give to God. Verse 42. Woe to you Pharisees. And the word woe here means alas. This is terrible for you. That's what it means. This is terrible for you Pharisees. For you tithe mint and rue and every herb. What does he mean? You give 10% of everything you have to God. Even down to the very herbs and spices. I mean you count out the granules. That's what Jesus is saying. You, you tithe. All the way down. Is there anything wrong with that? No. The principles tithing and taught throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus took it for granted and affirmed. Giving of your tithe to the Lord. But notice what he says. You tithe everything. But you neglect the weightier matters of the law. You neglect what is more important. You neglect justice and love. You ought to have done the first. You should have given your tithe without neglecting the others. What's, what is Jesus saying here? He is saying... That all of God's laws are not equally weighty. All of God's laws are equally true. What God says is true. He cannot lie. But everything that God has said is not equally weighty. What Jesus is saying here is giving your tithe to the Lord is a very good thing to do but it doesn't begin to compare with giving justice and mercy do both that's what Jesus is saying if you give to people you give to God but you hold your heart back from God you hold your heart back from people what are you guilty of you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart your soul your mind and your strength and you don't love your neighbor as yourself because that does not begin with money that begins with your soul that begins with your heart and you will never satisfy what it means to love God and love others by just money from the billfold. It's got to be out of your heart. This is what Jesus is saying. He says this is weightier, more important than you giving your tithe. 
is giving yourself to others to seek justice and to live in mercy. You ought to do both. So Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of the religious Pharisees. He exposes in regard to their prophets how they feel about their money. But then in, in regard to how they feel about their position. Look at verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees. Alas for you. For you love the best seat in the synagogues. And the greetings in the marketplaces. What's, what's Jesus saying? You, even when you go to worship, it's self-focused. Uh, you want the right seat so people can see you. You're not going so that you can encounter God. You want the best seat. You want the seat that perhaps you paid for. And woe be to the person who gets there before you and gets in your seat that you paid for by giving your offering. Tracking with me here? He says when you go to worship, it's self-focused. It's got to be the, your seat. It's got to be you the attention. Who's supposed to have the attention in worship in the house of God? The Lord. He says, and you're self-focused, not just in your worship, but in, the, in your way of life. When you're going through the marketplace. When you're just walking through the marketplace. You, you love. And the idea here is not you're grateful that people speak kindly to you, but that's what you're looking for. You see, you don't go through the marketplace seeing who you can bless. You don't go through the marketplace looking where you can be of help. No, you go through the marketplace seeing who will take care of you. Make you feel good about yourself. That's how you live your life. What can I do? So I make myself feel good about me. He says... This is wrong in your, in your worship, and your way of life. Why? What is God's command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. That's your worship. And out of that worship comes your way of life. You love your neighbor as yourself. It's not about us. It's about him. It's not about us. It's about them. Oh, if we can just live that way, him and them. Jesus exposes hypocrisy in regard to the prophets, how they use their money, in regard to the position that it's about them, not about God and others, and in regard to what they say about their purity, their moral purity. Look at verse 44. He says, Woe to you, alas to you, Pharisees, for you are like the unmarked graves. And people walk over them without knowing it. Wow. I mean, Jesus is on a roll here. It's kind of a holy roll, but he's on a roll. It is. He is. 
You see, according to the Old Testament laws, the ceremonial laws, if you stepped on a grave, you are unclean for seven days. That means you cannot go to the temple for seven days. You can't go to the synagogue for seven days. You've got to go through ritual cleansing if you step on a grave. And so you know what the Jewish people would do so that they'd be careful not to step on a grave? They whitewashed the grave. They look across the ground. People couldn't, only the rich could afford those graves in the rocks and the hewn tombs. Other people were just taken in a shroud, put in the ground, covered up. And then they would put whitewash on the top of those. So that as you were walking along, you wouldn't step on a grave and become ceremonially unclean. Notice what Jesus says to this Pharisee in his self-righteousness. He says, you are an unmarked grave. (laughs) Meaning that you're whitewashed. You try to whitewash yourself. But in reality, nobody knows you're like an unmarked grave inside. There's all kinds of corruption. And you defile people that come around you. You're very religious. You're very observant. You do all kinds of religious things. But by your spirit, you don't help people. You hurt people. Wow. I mean, this is party crashing. And and it was just too much. (laughs) Not not for the Pharisee, but it was so tense, one of his spiritual cousins jumped in. I mean, this this is like a fight down south. Okay. You better make sure other members of the family are not around. Because you whoop up on one. Now, the cousins everywhere come. And that's what's going on here. Uh, the spiritual cousin of the Pharisee is this lawyer who hears what Jesus is saying in verse number 45. The lawyer says, one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. I mean, I can understand you being tough with the Pharisees. (laughs) But as my dad would say, (laughs) you're starting to hoe pretty close to my corn, okay? (laughs) I'm starting to feel this just a little. And you can almost, it's almost like Jesus, (laughs) this isn't Jesus, but it's almost, you can imagine him saying, oh, you want some of this? (laughs) All right, I got more. That's not Jesus' attitude, that's mine. But he turned to this lawyer, and the lawyer feels like he's being prosecuted. The lawyer feels like he's being judged. And so he exclaims, I object! Now let's be clear, what is a lawyer here? A lawyer is 
a religious lawyer. It means he is a professor of religious studies. This is a profession. This is like an academic who is a specialist in the law, but not really the law of God. All the commentaries, all the oral tradition of 1,400 years that's been added to the law. Now, this is someone who is an expert not in the text of the Scriptures, but really an expert in the dogma that's been laid down upon the Word of God over 1,400 years. That's what this lawyer is. And Jesus turned to him and said, You lawyers are guilty. You are guilty of a form of self-righteousness. You are guilty of self-righteous legalism. Legalism. That is, you've been adding to the commandments of God. You've not been a lawyer who teaches the Word of God. You have been teaching that which just adds to the Word of God. And so what's the result? He says, here's your three crimes. Jesus said, I got three crimes for the Pharisee. I got three crimes for you. Number one, you lawyers are guilty of burdening people. You're taking religion and making it a burden. Not a blessing. Verse 46, woe to you. Alas for you. Alas for you lawyers, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. According to the law of God, if your brother or sister was bearing a burden and staggering under that burden, you were to help that brother or sister and fulfill the law by doing this. Here is someone, by his religious teaching, is not easing the burden of people. He is heaping burdens upon people and won't do a thing to help it, help get it off of them. He's weighing people down. You're not only guilty of burdening people. Notice you are guilty of the bloodshed of the prophets. This, is, this has been going on for generations, Jesus says. I mean, Jesus here, listen, he's not hysterical, but he is historical. Okay? And so he reaches back in history, verse 47, the history of his people. He says, woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. What's he saying? You are continuing the legacy of your ancestors who killed the prophets. Verse 48, so you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, and you build their tombs. He says, what hypocrisy is this? You have the same spirit that your ancestors had. What's that spirit? You don't want to hear the message of God. You don't want to hear the prophets of God. Just like you don't want to hear from me. I am the prophet of God. And I've brought you the message of God. You don't want to hear me. You're just like your ancestors who killed the prophets, and now what are you doing? Oh, you're building tombs for them. 
you're honoring the prophets of God with building their tombs. But you don't honor the prophets of God. You lawyers, you're not honoring the prophets of God by keeping their words that God gave them. You just build tombs to honor them, but you don't honor them by obeying the message God gave through them. You see Jesus' thought? And therefore Jesus said this, because you're doing the same thing. You're not being punished. Notice, you're not being punished for the sins of your ancestors. But because you've entered in with the same kind of spirit, and you're covering it with hypocrisy of honoring people that you yourself have not obeyed the message of God they brought. He said, now you are complicit in the guilt that your fathers, your ancestors experienced. Look at verse 48. You are witnesses. You're witnesses against yourself. That you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them. You build their temple. Their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said. I will send them prophets and apostles. Some of whom they will kill and persecute. Jesus said, you are going to be combined here. You have entered in to the same spirit of rejecting God, rejecting his message, rejecting his messengers. You try to cover it by building tombs in their honor. But he says, you are going to enter in to the same judgment that they deserve for their sin. Verse 49. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged to this genera- against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, It will be required of this generation. What is Jesus saying? He is saying that God has had his messengers sharing his message since the first prophet Abel. Remember the sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Abel testified to God's message by bringing the sacrifice of the flock. And Cain brought the work of the field. Abel testified his agreement with the message of God. And God accepted his sacrifice. He didn't accept Cain's sacrifice. Cain represents that religion which is not acceptable to God. And what did Cain do? He killed the first prophet, Abel. Who's Zechariah? You have to understand this. When you read your Old Testament chronologically, the first book, the, chronologically, the first book is Genesis, but actually the last book in the Jewish history is Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles. When you take the chronology and the prophet that was prophesying Zechariah, not the prophet who has a book named after him, 
But God raised up a prophet to speak against the idolatry that was happening in the temple of God. And the false prophets and the authorities of the kingdom who were supposed to be God's people, they took that man and they stoned him right in the very courtyard of the house of God. Now Jesus says, this is the wisdom of God. What does this mean? It means this is God's sovereign plan. God's sovereign plan is this. He does not cause sin. He does not cause people to reject his truth. But he takes the hatred of people against his message. He takes the hatred of people against his messenger. And God in his sovereign wisdom has ordained that that is what he will use to bring his purpose to accomplishment. God is so great, he's even able to use the wrath of people against him and his word to accomplish his purposes. Friends, listen to me. Our God is sovereign. Nothing can stop him, stop his message. They're guilty of burdening people. They're guilty of bloodshed. And they're guilty of blocking the pathway of salvation. What happens when you start adding to the word of God? What happens when you start, start rejecting God's message? And you add to that message human tradition and teaching. You actually are blocking the way of salvation. Verse 52. Woe to you lawyers. You have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves. What is knowledge? It's life in God. Life in His salvation. You have taken away the key. You didn't enter in yourselves. And you are hindering those who want to enter by your false message. Wow. He says, you have locked yourselves out by your unbelief. It's religious. You've locked yourselves out and you're blocking others. Wow. Now when Jesus said these things, friends, notice. He knew what he was saying could not be unsaid and he didn't want it unsaid. Jesus counted the cost. But he would be faithful to speak God's word. He would speak it in love. But he would speak. And he would speak against religious unbelief. Jesus' focus. His words were not focused against the government. His words were focused against false religion in the name of his father. And notice what the response of religious people was to God's truth spoken by God's Son. Repentance, like Nineveh, sackcloth and ashes. How did the religious leaders respond to love incarnate and truth 
in Jesus. Here's how they responded. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him. They pressed upon him. From that moment, he never had another moment's rest. Relentlessly, they pressed upon him. Pressed upon him. They were trying to provoke him. They were trying to get him to lose control. They wanted him to speak about many things. Knowing that if he said the wrong thing about certain people, they could use that against him. They were lying in wait. Like ravening wolves. They were lying in wait for the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, to catch him in something that he might say. Think you got enemies? Here's what they were saying. Jesus must die. He's got to die. He has got to die. <laughs> and what Jesus is saying? I am going to die. But I'm not going to die because you have authority. I'm going to die because I have my life and I've come to do my Father's will and I lay it down gladly for salvation. You by your anger, you by your persecution, you by your attack will just accomplish the wonderful bringing of the gospel of God through my death, burial, and resurrection. What a God we serve. He, he takes... The hatred of religion. And uses it to bring salvation. What was the father's plan? The gospel. His son was going to come and die and be raised again. And these wicked people were going to be responsible for it. But God in his providence would use their hatred. To bring Jesus as the Lamb of God whose death can cover all sin. Listen, even their sin. Jesus was going to die even for their sins. I just close with these two points and I thank you this is a long passage this is a challenging passage I've wrestled with it all week and I've, I've wrestled especially with the application of this because you see there's the existence of religious Pharisees and lawyers in our day they, this exists in our day now where does it exist where does it exist oh Wicked politics. Where, where does it exist? Where does this exist? Oh, out there. Someplace. In that wicked culture. That's where this terrible sin exists. No, my friend. This sin, these sins of the Pharisees and the lawyers, they exist in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, which is the visible church people who say they are of the king this is where this exists <laughs> this existed in the kingdom of god 
under Israel and now in the kingdom of God there are those who are not true believers. They are the tares who grow in the wheat. And they organize even a self-righteous false Christianity. There's religious Phariseeism today that we have to be aware of. What is religious Phariseeism? It's this. Here's a biblical definition. This is it. It's this hypocrisy. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Form without the force of the gospel. Gatherings everywhere around the world, around this country, week after week after week, in the name of Jesus, the form of something having to do with Jesus. But there's no power of the gospel. There's no sharing of the word of God. There's no holding forth of the hope in Christ. This is the religion of Antichrist. Antichrist is not some place out there. The spirit of Antichrist is within the kingdom where there is a form of religion, but there's not the power of the gospel and not the proclaiming of the gospel. Friends, I had two conversations this week. God helped me prepare for this. First was an example of this religious hypocrisy. I talked with a man who had been converted to faith in Jesus Christ. He was wonderfully converted. He was so happy about it. He went to his Protestant minister. Now, I, I believe in being Protestant in the right definition. Listen carefully. He went to his Protestant minister, told him what was happening, told him of the joy he had in the Lord. You know what his minister told him? You need psychiatric therapy. He found out his own minister didn't know Christ. Listen to me. That has been repeated to me dozens and dozens of times over the years. People have come to me and said, Sam, I went to my pastor and told him what had happened in my life. And he told me I needed counseling. He doesn't know Jesus. My pastor, he doesn't know Jesus. I said, that's right. I don't judge him. But if he doesn't believe in the power of the blood of the Lamb, he is a false prophet. And if he doesn't uphold the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only hope for the world, that man, that woman's a false prophet. Amen. It's what Jesus said. Religious legalism. What is religious legalism? It's this. Here's a definition. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me because they are teaching as doctrines the commandment of men. They're teaching as doctrines the tradition of man. Heaping on, heaping on traditions so that the gospel of Jesus Christ... The word of truth is covered over by so much tradition. Man-made teachings. That the gospel 
can scarcely be even seen at all. I had a second conversation this week. Dear lady made an appointment to see me. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Dial in carefully. Make sure you don't miss what I'm about to say. This woman had been raised in the Roman Catholic Church. She had been taught in Roman Catholic schools. Now listen carefully to what I'm saying, about to say. I have nothing against the Catholic Church. As a matter of fact, I am a Catholic and I am a member of the Catholic Church. You know what Catholic means? Universal. And if you're a believer, you are part of the Holy Catholic Church. There's a universal Church of Christ saved by faith alone in Him. However, there is Roman Catholicism. And this woman had lived her life going to church, going to church, going to church. Guilt heaped on her. That practice of this, doing of this, the observance of this. No message from the Word of God. No hope of a risen Christ. Just come and take this communion. Come and say these words. Come and go through this motion. But no sharing of life and freedom in Christ and joy. This this. Message of the gospel was covered over by a man-made system. The gospel of grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, through the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. That is a message. My friend, understand what I'm saying. I thank God for anyone who comes to know Jesus Christ. I thank God for how the Lord brings him to himself. But my friend, listen. Any system that says it is salvation apart from grace alone, by faith alone, through the scriptures alone, by Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, that is not the message of the gospel. And I don't care what name's over the door. Thank God she's going to be baptized soon. Why? She knows Christ and she wants to identify with Christ in saving grace. What I just said probably gets taken off Facebook. Guess what? You can't stop the Word of God. You think the word of God is dependent on Silicon Valley? <laughs> Man. That's been tried. It doesn't work. God's greater. Now, friends, last thing, and I'm, I must finish this, and you must listen <laughs> because you're gracious people. I want you to do one more examination as I have this week. And I need to continue it. And it is the application of the, to the spirit of what Jesus is saying here. We need to examine the religious Pharisee and the lawyer in the mirror. Friends, our flesh is a perfect Pharisee. Our flesh rejoices in legalism, self-righteousness. We have to make sure 
That is the true reality of life in Christ and that we do not allow ourselves to be deceived in religious hypocrisy. How do you know if you may be drifting into religious hypocrisy? How do you know that you may have to look in the mirror and say, Oh Lord God, be merciful to me in this spirit. How do you know that? Let me just give you a few things to consider. If you give money to God, but you don't give yourself to Him and others, that's hypocrisy. If you give money to God, but you don't give yourself to Him and others, that's hypocrisy. You can't buy God off for some coins. If you're more concerned about outward appearance than inward godliness, ask the Lord to deal with this self-righteousness. If I am more concerned about my preferences, my preferences, than I am about my spirit being right with God and all others, that's hypocrisy. If I'm more concerned about my spirit than the spirit of Christ, that's hypocrisy. If it's more about a focus on me than a focus on Christ and others. When you start thinking that Jesus came to give you whatever you want. <laughs> oh, my friend. The Lord will give us what we need to know Christ and to make Him known. If you're coming to church, listen, virtually here. If you're coming to church and you read the Bible but you don't come to worship and you don't let the Bible read you, that's hypocrisy. You see, you can read the Bible, you can have your devotions, but don't let the Bible read you. It's how I respond to God as He reveals Himself in this Word. That's worship. I don't talk about, if I don't talk a lot about Jesus, I need to check my heart. And when I say talk about Jesus, I mean the J word. Don't just be satisfied with Lord, that's wonderful, or God. Every once in a while, as much as you can, use the J word. Let's talk about Jesus. How much do you talk about Jesus? Why? Why do we not talk about Jesus, the dearest friend? You ever talk about your grandkids? Ever talk about your children? Why don't we talk about Jesus? Well, people might think that... There you go. Don't even have to finish the sentence. If I love to study theology more than I love to serve God and others, If I'm big on truth, but I'm little on love and grace. If I, stop, if I like to study God's grace, and what an infinite subject that is. 
If I want to study God's grace, but I'm not a gracious person, something's wrong. We should not be talking about grace and sovereign grace if we're not gracious people. If I confuse my politics with my Christianity. That's a slippery slope and I need to deal with that. Because my God is bigger than any political system. My God, your God is not identified by a political party. I pray we've come to understand something. And God will reveal it to us. The only hope for this world or any human being or any community or any nation is Jesus Christ. It's the only hope there is. This week, and last week, I've been reading. I, I don't even know why God took me there at first. <laughs> Jeremiah 29 through 33. And I read it over and over and over again. And I was just amazed. Because what's that passage all about? It's when God says, here's the future and hope to his people. He says, this is what's happening to you, Israel, Judah. But... I've given you a future and hope. I'll make with you a new covenant. And I will bring you back to this land someday. But this covenant I'm going to make is for the world to know me. And I thought about this. You know, I look around and I can see things that are happening. I see the fulfillment of what God said about the Jewish people coming back. But you see, if I'm not careful, if I'm not careful, I miss this. I start going so deep into prophecy. I start going so deep into global issues that I forget God's speaking to me. I have gone away. I need to be restored. And the new covenant is my hope in Christ. That is my hope. <laughs> that his law will be written on my heart. And I put this verse in my journal. And I've marked it. Jeremiah 31, 18. Lord, here's my prayer. Bring me back that I may be restored. For you are the Lord my God. You see... We're always driven in our self-righteousness and our hypocrisy. Where does God bring us? He brings us back to the one hope. The hope that is in the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's enough. Lord, I sense the hypocrite in me. I sense the legalist in me. You've revealed this. Lord, bring me back that I may be restored for you are the Lord my God. Let's stand to our, our feet quietly. Church family, people listening.
I, I recognize that I've gone very, very long. If this is not the longest message I've ever brought, it's up there in the top five or ten for sure. I just sense how deeply this is the issue in my heart so often in the kingdom, in our church, that we are driven to Christ as we cling to Christ. We desire to be conformed to Him in spirit. It's Christ alone, His blood cleansing us, His spirit changing us. He alone is our hope. And if He turns our hearts to Him, He will restore us as we sense that we long to go to Him. He longs to come to us. His arms are open. Oh, let's pray that the Lord will keep us from these dreadful tendencies in his, that Jesus has talked about, but will drive us in a sense of our hypocrisy, in a sense of our legalism, drive us to Christ, for Christ is grace and truth. Christ is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentle, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. That is Jesus. And those qualities are qualities of Jesus. And as I pursue Jesus, He produces those in me. We come just as we are. Don't try to fix things. Come as you are.